Thank you, Pastor Todd, and uh, I'm glad that uh, you and Janine, in one way, I'm glad that they're here. Uh, we're always excited about uh, little Walker babies, and uh, to have another uh, Walker boy is especially exciting. There's a lot of, I, I told you this before, <clears throat> our daughter Christy is the first girl in my side of the family in five generations. And there's there's a lot of Walker there's a lot of Walker boys out there. My my grandpa Walker was one of thirteen boys. I mean, no wonder my great grandma quit, right? I mean, enough's enough. I'm not going to get a girl. And then uh, my grandpa Walker or my grandma Walker married one of them long before my time, and he passed away early, so she married his brother. Like, why not? There's twelve more coming. So. Uh, yeah, we're thankful that the Walker boys, Todd and Travis, have broken the Walker genetic code, and there are little Walker girls. And uh, but uh, yeah, boys, boys are okay. Boys are fun, and we're we're excited about the little baby that could be any time. And uh, Grandma Peggy is home on Grandma duty, so it's like it's like this. Um, I could come here, Mel speak, or or play with grandkids. Guess who won? And guess where she is today? If you have your Bibles. <clears throat> For our scripture reading this morning, turn with me to 1 Peter. It's going to be on the slides as well. 1 Peter chapter 4, our text this morning, 1 Peter 4 is verses 7 through 11, or verses 7 through 11. 1 Peter 4, let me read it. I am reading a New King James, 1 Peter 4, verses 7 through 11. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. And above all things, have fervent love for one another. For love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Verse 11. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. That is our passage. Let me pray, and uh, we'll, uh, we'll ask God's blessing upon our Bible study this morning. Father, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for the opportunity that we have this morning to study your word together. And God, I just pray that your word would be real and alive in our hearts, in our lives, and help us to be receptive to what you have for us. Father, I thank you for your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, did I hit a wrong button there? No, you did. Okay, you guys did hit the wrong button. Um, I want to talk with you about this morning. If you have your notes on the inside of the bulletin, you can turn there, and it's just a quick outline on living so that God is glorified. Um, this, when I put the PowerPoint together for today's, this is wishful thinking, I admit to you. But I had um, a hunch listening to uh, television and, and radio weather reports that we might get good weather. I'm not sure that it's beach weather yet. But um, the glory of a sunset or sunrise, and I don't know which one is which there uh, in, that, in that particular picture. But Psalm 19 says this. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Isaiah 6 says this, let the earth be filled with his glory. Now in saying that, here, here's what I want to talk with you about. 
And that is certainly we can look around and see the glory of God and see the majesty of God. But to be honest with you, in the New Testament, and especially in this passage, there is one other thing that God mentions more than that about His glory. And that is that we are to live so that God gets the glory from our lives. And that's the passage that I want to talk with you. That's the passage that I just read. And notice this phrase. And we're going to talk about this passage. It says at the end of that passage, the part that by the magic of Microsoft again, it changed colors. That in all things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. In all things. In fact, one of the things that I hope you notice from this passage today is that one of the things, it's, I, I am a writer, I've written several books, but one of the things that often the writers of Scripture do, which I believe with all my heart it's what God intended, and that is if a, pa- if a writer of Scripture says something over and over again, it is usually for emphasis. And there's a couple of things in this passage that are mentioned um, over and over again. One is the phrase, all things. I love that. And uh, I'm not uh, the originator of this saying, but if we see the word all, all means all, and that's all all means, right? All, everything. That in everything that we do, that in all things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. And then it talks about, in this passage, about how, how we do that. Living so that God is glorified. Let me just explain a little bit to you about what that idea means. I mean, we tend to throw it around. Okay, do all to the glory of God, that the God that you may be glorified. Well, here it is. To glorify God is this, to show honor, respect, or reverence, to hold in high esteem, or to value highly. And this, which is also emphasized in this passage, and I'll, and I'll talk with you about that more in a minute, and or to demonstrate to others that something is important to you. To demonstrate to others, there is a, an aspect of us living for the glory of God that shows up, or that needs to show up in our lives. Let me give you a couple of really, really dumb illustrations, which are hypothetical. But when my boys were younger, my boys and I used to collect baseball cards. This is not true. This is not true. We collected baseball cards, and we still have thousands of them. But let's just say that I had, if you're a baseball fan, you'll understand this, and I don't, but I had a Mickey Mantle rookie card. I mean, that is, I don't, that is incredibly valuable, it is incredibly expensive, and if I had one, I would probably tell you, hey, I have a Mickey Mantle rookie, I don't, but I would, I, I have a Mickey Mantle rookie baseball card, and it would be incredibly valuable. I would probably have it under lock and key, but I would probably have it in layers of glass, tightened so it's airproof, you know, so it's it stays in mint condition, And but I would probably show it to you because it's that valuable to me. I'll tell you another one. I told you already these were dumb, hypothetical illustrations, but it's true. A few years ago, Peggy and I went on a um, missions trip to Milan, Italy, okay? In Milan, Italy is the famous museum where Leonardo da Vinci has a lot of things that Leonardo da Vinci created. His original painting of the Last Supper 
is in Milan, Italy. I, before the trip, this is also not true, before the trip, I cashed in my piggy bank, and I bought the original uh, Last Supper, right? No, absolutely not true. But if we had something in our lives, here's the point. If we had something, something that we thought was incredibly valuable, we would protect it, but we would probably also talk about it. We would display it in our lives. And so I, again, dumb illustrations. But we have the responsibility of living so that God is glorified. The Apostle Paul, in writing to 1 Corinthians, wrote this. Whatever you do echoes the same thing that Peter does here. Do all to the glory of God. And what I want to talk with you about is that God needs to be and is the most important thing in our lives. And so that means that shows by what we do. Let me just say that again. God is and should be, that, and we demonstrate, so that it shows in our life what, how important God is to our lives. That's the idea that Peter is writing about here. says at the end of that, that uh, in all things, in all things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. So I want to talk with you about that today. Basically, the outline of this passage is, can be boiled down into three simple words or three that Peter writes to us about. Or three simple action steps that, uh, that can show other people and that we can demonstrate in our lives that God is that important to us. There's three things. Pray, love, and serve. Those are the three things that Peter talks about. Now next week, uh, Lord willing, if we continue, uh, again, Lord willing in this passage, this passage, 7 through 11, talks about living so that God is glorified. Are you ready for next week's? Next week's, if we continue in this passage and talk about, it's talking about suffering so that God is glorified. Suffering, which also uh, kind of ramps it up a little bit that God may choose to have us suffer for him, for him to be glorified. But today it's living. Today it's a little bit easier than next week. And so in this passage, he, Peter writes about praying, about loving, and about serving. So here's our quick outline. Pray because that proves our dependency upon God. Love because that shows the agape love of Christ. And then three, serve because that demonstrates. All of those have that demonstration, show, prove, that, that, that demonstration in our lives that God is important to us. So here's number one, pray. Because our prayer life proves our dependency upon God. I don't know if you ever thought about that. The fact that we would even pray at all, and we should and we need to, we'll talk about that in a minute, uh, shows that we're dependent upon God, right? If we, The Bible talks about praying without ceasing, living in an attitude of prayer, and when something happens in our lives and we cry out to God, that means we're dependent upon Him. And Peter writes about that. Now here's what it says. Verse 7 says this, But the end of all things is at hand. Okay, again, remember all things. is one of the, the end of all things. The the word, we understand that if you are a student of Scripture at all, that we are living in the end times, right? We're living in the end times. The word at hand means it's basically it's coming. And so if we understand Scripture, if we're a student of Scripture at all, then we understand the idea of prophecy. We understand that the Lord is coming back, and we understand that things are getting worse and worse and worse. And so in that vein, Peter is writing and says this, you better be praying 
because the end of all things is at hand. In other words, the end of all things is coming, so you'd better pray. It's that, that's really the idea, Mel's translation of this verse. And that is we are living in the end times. You look around, and uh, things are getting worse. Things are getting difficult. And we look around, and we better pre- and, and one of the things that maybe is a good thing about that is that God drives us to pray. God motivates us to pray. But then it says this. That therefore, because of that, the end is near, and because we better live in demonstration that we, that we are dependent upon God, then we need to be serious and watchful in our prayers. And I don't know if we've ever thought about it that way. The words serious and watchful, and your translation may have it a different way, but the idea is being self-controlled or sober-minded and being serious and disciplined in prayer. Building on what I just said, and that is we're praying because we're dependent upon God, that our prayer life isn't supposed to be flippant, it isn't supposed to be just something that we throw in, that is supposed to be serious and disciplined. Can I tell you about the one man in my life that probably taught me more about prayer than anybody else? Can I tell you, can I tell you a story real quick? Man's name was a friend of mine back in my first ministry, actually in the church where Janine grew up too. But that's where that's where I served in uh, in Michigan. And his name he I don't think he was around by the time Janine grew up. But when I was there, his name was Eddie Olson. Eddie, when I was there, um, was in his forties, and I was a young youth pastor in my twenties. But uh, Eddie was. Uh, mentally challenged. Eddie um, acted probably like a five or six-year-old. He lived with his mom, Mrs. Olson, and uh, Eddie became my buddy. A few times when I was there, uh, Eddie suffered with uh, congestive heart failure. And I'd go see him, and uh, he had that childlike faith. He really did. And uh, so Eddie became my buddy. We had a big church, and we had several of us guys on staff. And you know how it is in that kind of church. At the end of the service, all of the pastors would take one door, one exit out of the auditorium and shake hands with people. Eddie would, uh, actually, he would even cry out and tell his mom that he had to come to Mel's door. He had to see me. Every single Sunday, he would make sure that he shook my hand. And every single Sunday... Mrs. Olson would give Eddie uh, one page of a coloring book. One page. And often, not every week, but often, and I'm not, I never was sure why it wasn't every week, to be real honest with you, but Eddie would give me his masterpieces, his crayon drawings um, at the door. And my, li- my office was lined with Eddie Olson masterpieces. It wasn't Leonardo da Vinci's The Last Supper. But it was Eddie Olson original art in my office. And uh, like I said, Eddie had uh, a lot of health issues, had congestive heart failure. There were times that I'd go see him in the hospital and he'd be in an episode and scared out of his mind. And he would often say to me uh, in his broken little childlike way, Pastor, pray. And I would watch as I prayed. I, that's okay, by the way. I would watch as I prayed. 
And Eddie would calm down because he believed in prayer. He was that kind of guy. He believed in prayer. But I told you all of that about Eddie to bring you to this, the time that Eddie taught me about prayer. And that is there was a time back then where I was, I was pretty sick. And one morning I found about out, out about this way after the fact through Eddie's mom. Eddie and his mom would get up every morning and Eddie would sit down at the kitchen table and eat a bowl of cereal and cornflakes or Wheaties or whatever. And then they would get up and Eddie would go into the living room with his mom and they would have devotions every single morning. His mom was retired and lived, took care of Eddie. And they would go in the living room and Eddie would, she would have Eddie do his prayers on his knees. And that was their regular time. So one morning, Eddie and his mom were having their cornflakes. And I was sick, and Mrs. Olson had been praying for me. And she said to Eddie, now, Eddie, this morning, uh, we need to pray for Pastor Mel. Pastor Mel is sick. Eddie, this is probably going to choke me up some, okay? Eddie didn't finish his cereal. He got up, he went to the living room, because that's where he prayed. And he got down on his knees, and he prayed for me. And you have to know Eddie Olson. He didn't kick into King James language prayers. You ever hear somebody like that? Our Father, Thou, you know, he, it wasn't like that. It was, it was this, God, help Mel get better. God, help Mel get better. And here's what his mom told me after the fact, that Eddie prayed that morning for me, I think for over five or six hours straight, on his knees, over and over and over again. God, help Pastor Mel, help Mel get better, help Mel get better, help Mel get better, help Mel get better. Here's the thing, Eddie didn't get up to finish his breakfast. Eddie didn't get up to have lunch. And I'm sorry, folks, but I just want you to understand, Eddie didn't get up to go to the restroom. He prayed for me. Now, let me ask you something. Do you think it's any wonder I got better <laughs> to have a guy like that praying for me? Here's the thing that Eddie taught me about prayer. Eddie taught, Eddie taught me that prayer is important enough that you do it, right? We don't just talk about it, we do it. Now here's the thing, let's go back to the passage, okay? But the end of all things is at hand, and be serious, and I underlined that, and I gave you the definition of serious and watchful, and you heard me give you a story about Eddie and how Eddie taught me about prayer he was a guy that believed in prayer enough to do it. Now you look at the language and what the Apostle Peter is communicating to us. The end of all things is at hand. It makes sense that we would be sober and watchful and serious and all of that. But the word there, the, the, the phrase there, has the idea of discipline. The phrase there was also used of not being sleepy or even not being drunk or intoxicated. 
that to be sober, to be sober-minded, to be serious about prayer. And I think in, in our culture today, it brings us to a couple of very practical things about prayer that glorifies God with our prayer life. And number one is the idea of discipline in prayer, that you believe, that we believe, that I believe enough in prayer that we do it. And the idea that prayer is a discipline, be serious and watchful in our prayers. And let me just say, first of all, that I don't think, folks, I'm, I'm smiling because this is, this is for me as well, but I don't think that'll probably ever happen without a prayer list. Can I show you something from the scriptures? You ready to take a little journey with me? Is that okay? All right, and, and jot these down. You can study them later if you want, but turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. And, I, and, I'm, and I'm showing you a couple references to, to make one point, and I'll get there in a minute, about prayer being serious and watchful in our prayers, okay? Prayer is important enough that we do it. So, uh, in Philippians chapter 1, and I, I have this verse, these verses underlined in my Bible. Uh, Philippians chapter 1 verse 4 says this. Remember I already told you to highlight today all things are always. Look at what verse 4 says. Always in every prayer of mine, making request for you all with joy. Always in every prayer, Paul wrote. Okay, you got that? Always in every prayer. Now turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. We're on a little, little journey about prayer. Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1 verse 3 says, We give thanks, Colossians 1 3. We give thanks to God, to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. And there's one more. Let me, there's, there's others, but let me just show you one more. Keep going, a little, little bit of a journey. 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3. 2 Timothy 1, 3. I thank God whom I serve with a pure conscience, 2 Timothy 1, 3, as my forefathers did, that as without ceasing I remember you in my prayers night and day. Okay? Let that, we'll stop. There's others in the Bible where, where Paul uses those phrases. But let's just stop. That's our little journey. Go back to 1 Peter chapter 4. Do you notice how Paul wrote to people, different groups of people, and, I, and, and said, I pray for you always. I pray for you in every prayer. I pray for you night and day. Folks, I think there's no doubt, I mean, in the scriptures, if you're to study the scriptures, there's no doubt that Paul, the apostle Paul, was a brilliant guy, right? There's no doubt about that. But even the most brilliant people you know forget every now and then, right? Absent-minded professor-type people, they're brilliant, but they forget. Paul didn't forget. And as we read those verses... Um, it's important for us to remember that he's writing that under inspiration of God. You know, I admit to you that I might say to you, well, I always, and yeah, you would smile and say, well, Mel, you know, that's not really true. But Paul is writing under inspiration of God, and he says, I always pray for you. I, I, think, I think Paul had a prayer list. I do. 
I think Paul had a list that he prayed or he would have forgotten that he wrote on there the things. And I don't think this is a, any big deal, but I brought a copy of mine. Can I tell you, just shooting straight with you this morning, the things that I pray for every single day? Is that okay? I'll, I'll show you mine. Every day I pray for my own personal relationship with God, including confession of sin, 1 John 1, 9. I pray for my wife every single day. I pray for my kids. I pray for their spouses. I pray for my grandchildren. I pray for other family members every single day. I pray for my church every single day. I pray for my pastor. That guy's on there twice. He, I, I know him. He needs it. I know him, right? So do you. I pray for my close friends and coworkers. I pray for people that I've shared Christ with. I pray for my personal needs in my life every single day. I pray for my priorities and goals, things that God put a burden on my heart to do and things that I'd like to accomplish someday. I pray about my next book as a writer. I do. And I have another category that says others. I have friends on there that have health needs right now. I have friends on there that have jobs or have financial needs or spiritual battles. And, and I'm not telling you any big deal because I already told you that there are other people in life that taught me a lot about prayer, people like Eddie, that prayer was important enough for him to pray. Let me tell you one other thing. It goes back to the Eddie Olson story. I mean, if we're going to be disciplined, serious and disciplined with our prayer, and looking at the Apostle Paul, I think the prayer list... Folks, have a list. Write it down of things that are so important. You pray for it every single day. And I think there's another one. I think the Eddie Olson thing, and that is have a disciplined time to pray. I think that when prayer, our prayer life at time becomes a habit, Eddie having a cereal, going out, having devotions, getting down on his knees, I think we've, I think we've lost that. I mean, I'm thankful for times driving all by myself when I can pray. Last weekend I wasn't here. I was speaking at a church in Columbus, Ohio. I prayed a lot in the car. I pray to stay awake sometimes. I pray out loud sometimes in the car. I pray at night when I'm falling asleep. I pray in the mornings. I pray every now and then when I'm out in the woods deer hunting. I pray. But if we're going to be serious and disciplined about prayer, then I think it demands a list or deserves a list. Maybe put it that way. But also it deserves a dedicated time that we're going to carve out some time to pray and ask God. I think that glorifies God. And I think the Apostle Peter would say, folks, don't forget the end is near. Because of that, you should pray. And pray with discipline and pray with seriousness and pray with, with fervor. I think Paul, I think Peter would say that. Number two, quickly. Number two. Love is the second thing. And you'll know, if you've been coming to our church, you know that the last couple of series that we've done have emphasized love a lot. And so maybe, maybe God's trying to get our attention on this. Love, because our love for others shows the agape love of Christ. And that certainly was true in our study of 1 John. And Peter emphasizes that here as well. Look at verse 8. Above all things, <clears throat> above all things, um, the word above there, meaning in, in priority, above priority, building priorities into our lives. It says this, above all things have fervent, and I love the descriptors in Peter's language, have fervent love for one another, for love 
will cover a multitude of sins. Love will cover a multitude of sins. Fervent love. The word you can see by, uh, again, the little box there on, the, on my PowerPoint. It means intense or increasing activity. I know you know this, but that word in that time was also used of a fire that builds, that has a fervency, it builds, and so on. And then I underlined a word, because that's implied in the Greek word, fervency, is that's increasing activity. In other words, when Peter wrote about love and uses the word fervent, he's talking about doing something. Verse 8 says this, And above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Okay, so in English it doesn't really show up, but I know you know this, and so it makes, it makes sense that in the language that the word is agape love, which I have talked with you about uh, before out of the scriptures, is that self-sacrificial love that sent Jesus to the cross, that Jesus knew all about our sins and he went to the cross anyway. That kind of choice is not romantic love. It's not that. It's not sexual love. It's not that. It's not the latest Hallmark movie. Forgive me, ladies, for throwing that in. I did that the last time I talked about love, too. And my wife isn't even here to get the, you know, that I'm, that I'm picking on her. It's the love of Christ, agape, self-sacrificing. It is a choice kind of love. And so I think here's the point when Paul, or excuse me, when Peter writes love because our love for others shows the agape love of Christ. It's interesting to me that he uses the word agape for love, a derivative of that kind of love. In other words, choose to love and choose to demonstrate that love. And that should grow as we go through our relationship with Jesus Christ. That should grow. And so I think here's the point about this idea of love is that we demonstrate our love, we show our love, we, uh, we, we do something in life. And it's interesting that that word fervent also has the, implies that idea of stretching, of doing that for a goal. And, and there in, this, in the language here, it does talk about that idea that others will notice. And so I think today, how do we love so that God is glorified? How do we live that shows that God is valuable to us, that we demonstrate a fervent, a growing, a do-something kind of love. So the recipients will say, and I think here's the point, that the recipients will say, why are you doing that? And we could point that, them, to God. We're doing this because of God. It's not because I'm a nice guy or not because I'm a you know, great individual or loving person. That's the language here, that our love for others demonstrates the agape love of Christ. The last several years, my ministry with this organization that's called Vision for Youth, one of the things that, that our ministry does is take teenagers on inner city missions trips. And we've been in downtown Chicago last several years and uh, downtown Philadelphia as well. Philadelphia, some of you will know, the Kensington neighborhood, one of the most violent neighborhoods in the country and the Humboldt Park section of Chicago, one of the highest gang activities. And every summer doing that, it just strikes me that people say, well, you're from Pennsylvania, why are you here? 
And I think that's the idea that I'm pointing out here, is that our love should be fervent, should be stretching, should be an activity, so that others around us ask that why question. And it gives us an opportunity then to demonstrate and to show and to tell, show and tell, about Christ. To point people to Christ, because that's why we do that. That's why we love. Again, it's not because we're nice. It's not because we're friendly. It's not because we, but it's, it's a choice because we want to point people to Christ. Does that make sense? Three, the third way that we can demonstrate. Um, yeah, I, I, I thought, I, I forgot to put this verse on the slide. John 13, 35 says it the same way. By this we'll all know that you have my disciples. In other words, there's a, uh, there's a show-and-tell aspect to that, that they will see it and know that you're my disciples if you have love one for another. And then, number, oh, and then, oh yeah, I'm sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself today. The idea at the end of that phrase where it says that love will cover a multitude of sins, that obviously that verse is pointing us back to Jesus. That that love, what can cover, what kind of love covers that multitude of sin? Christ's love on the cross, right? And it gives us an opportunity, and we'll talk about this more as Easter gets closer, that the gospel, the love of Christ on the cross, that gives us our message that we, when people ask us about that love, it gives us the message of, of Jesus in the cross. Then number three. Number three, serve. Because our service for Christ demonstrates our commitment to him. And the rest of this passage, let me read it again. You have it there on the slide. But let me read the rest of the passage to you. Be hospitable one to another without grumbling. And certainly that could figure, um, fit under the love part of this message as well, the love part of this passage. Be hospitable. Be, um, um, yeah, to treat people well. Be hospitable to people uh, is there in verse, verse 9. We'll come back and talk about that more in a minute. Verse 10. As each one has received a gift, Minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak of the oracles as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it with the ability that God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Let me just kind of break this down. Number one, it says in this passage that each one of us has received a gift. And I just put a bubble or a box there to show you about this and that is sometime on your own and we're not going to take the time to do that this morning but read what the bible says about the idea of spiritual gifts and i know you know this right that the bible is clear that every single one of us that knows jesus christ as a personal savior has been given a gift at least a gift by god for service that gives us the ability to serve romans 12 1 corinthians 12 talk about that and so it says that peter's writing each one has received a gift in other words a god-given ability to serve him we'll talk about that more in just a moment this goes on to say minister it use it one one for another to use it that's what again if you were to read about gifts and I think in Scripture, I think, and I, I would, if you've studied this before, I think it's interesting in the Bible that the Bible never says, you know, figure it out or determine your spiritual gift. I think just do, get busy, do what God wants you to do, and let God bless the gifts He's given you, right? I think, I think that's the idea. 
But the idea that Peter is writing here is, okay, you have a God-given service. You have a God-given ability to service. Now get at it. Get busy. Use it. And then this. It says, as good stewards. And the Bible talks a lot about the idea of stewardship. And that is you are the manager. You are the, the steward, not the owner of that gift. In other words, it's for God. Serve Him. We'll end up talking about that more in a minute. And do it with the ability that God supplies. One of the things, you know, Pastor Todd's been talking with us is that our church is that we need people to serve him. God designed his church. Read Ephesians 4 as well. That God designed his church to be made up with people. Everyone is different and everyone has different skills, different abilities, different gifts that are God-given. Here in the passage, it talks about a few, Right? It talks about hospitality. Really, in, in this passage, it talks about the word was used, hospitality, was kindness towards strangers. But in this passage, it talks about one another for believers. In other words, it's okay for us to be nice to other believers too, right? That's okay. And the idea of hospitality is use your home for ministry. Okay, then it talks about speaking. There are other pe- There are people... I'm up here today, Pastor Todd or whatever, that have the ability. If you were to read Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, there are people that have God-given public gifts to use their gifts publicly. There are others, and it uses the word here in this passage, to minister or to serve. There are gifts, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, that are behind-the-scenes gifts, giving, helps hospitality, mercy, that may not be public, that, in other words, get up front and talk kind of gifts, but are incredible God-given abilities to serve, that God gave you the ability to serve. I I guess it's story time this morning. I'm going to tell you another one, which I've talked to you about before, and I, I know I have. This one may be a little bit redundant, but it's on my heart, on my mind. Yesterday was my dad's birthday, April 6th. I was voting for Baby Walker April Fool's Day because I could remember that, <laughs> or April 6th because it was my dad, my dad, James Albert Walker's birthday. He's been in heaven over 10 years, but he, he was born in 19. 19- 25. My dad was a simple guy, but my, my dad, he was a World War II vet. After uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, he went to uh, Japan and had to do what he called, I guess what the Army called, mop-up duty at the end of World War II. That's what my dad did. Um, my dad, because of World War II, never finished high school. I, in fact, he Never even finished ninth grade. My dad was just a simple guy. He retired from uh, from Sears. My dad delivered furniture for Sears. Like if you buy a refrigerator or buy a chair from Sears. In, in, a, in the Sears glory days, my dad... Jim Walker, we call, honestly, asked Todd, we called him Big Jim. Big Jim would, he, he wasn't as big as me, but he was a big guy. He would show up at your house, 
And he was, in his heyday, he's the kind of guy that could grab a refrigerator almost by himself and move it into your house by himself. And he was a common laborer. When I was a kid, I hate even to say this now, and I think maybe I've mentioned this to you before. Um, growing up, going to high school especially, I was often embarrassed by my dad. I don't know if you've ever gone through those kinds of emotions. My parents were just simple people. We were never the cool kids. We, we were never, uh, you know, had the nice clothes growing up or, you know, uh, the great outfits or anything like that. Just as simple, my dad was a delivery man. You know, never finished high school. And my dad, I don't know if your dad did this. I think maybe it is in the dad's rule book because I'm sure I did this too, but my dad would often do things that embarrassed us as kids. All right, dads kind of like do that anyway. But my dad was like best at that. He would come to my basketball games when I was playing basketball in high school and cheer for me like at the wrong times. Like at halftime. Dad, I'm not doing anything at halftime. And then, you know, on the way home, he'd say, well, you missed your foul shots again. You know, I, you know and I... Whatever, that was my dad. And so I admit, growing up, I was often embarrassed by my dad. He was just a simple guy and just a simple family. And um, my dad, if he were alive today uh, and he were here, and he would be here, but I mean, he, he would love that. But he couldn't understand why anybody would like to get up in front of people and talk. My dad couldn't understand that. And yet my brother, older brother, and I both turned out to be pastors. My dad couldn't understand how anybody could like to do that. Our church up at Montrose, our Bridgewater, where my grandpa grew up, my dad grew up in that little church back in those days, there was one time that my dad was voted by the church to be a deacon. And he was a deacon for a couple months and actually quit, which was really out of character for my dad because my dad told me, like, you know, this is like one of those always things, like a bazillion times my dad told me, there's nothing worse than a quitter, and yet he did. And I found out later that my dad was so afraid that the pastor would call on him to pray in public, that my dad was so afraid, was so nervous by that, that he wouldn't do it, and he even quit being a deacon because he was afraid. And he wouldn't go to the pastor and say, don't call on me, I'm nervous. He just was afraid that they would call on him and he'd have to pray out loud in public. And it, it would scare him so much that he would just not do it. And, and that was my dad. But looking back, I, my brother and I had the opportunity to speak at his funeral. And I said this very story that I'm telling you about my dad today at my dad's funeral a few years ago now. That it hit me when my dad died, that he may have been one of the greatest men that I've ever met in my life, and I'll tell you why. Every single church supper, next week we're gonna have a church supper. My dad, the kind of guy that wouldn't stand up and pray, but every single church supper that we ever had, he would walk around to the tables at the end of the supper, not ever up in front, but he'd say at church suppers, Leave your stuff. I'll get it. Leave your stuff. I'll get it. Leave your stuff. I'll get it. You'll know. Did you ever look around 
after church suppers. It's not pretty. It's what's left over. My dad was that big guy. He, not big, but big. And when he'd go around and say, my dad actually, when he retired, my, my mom and dad moved in next door to the church. He moved in next door. And they gave him a key, that guy that wouldn't pray in public. You know what he volunteered at church to do? He volunteered to be the guy that took out the garbage. Did you ever have anybody volunteer to be the garbage man? My dad, I can picture it now telling you the story. My dad, they lived in this high rise, which was like three floors in Montrose, uh, apartment building for seniors next door to the church. And my dad, every single night before he'd uh, go to bed, he'd look out the window and look at the church because someone might have left a light on. And there were times, somebody, you know how those people are, they left the light on. My dad put on his shoes, put on his boots, go downstairs, go into the church, turn off the light, they gave him the key, he took out the garbage, he was that kind of guy, and he'd go back up, and before he'd go to bed the next time, he'd look over, because you never know who might sneak in and turn the lights on the church, and he'd turn it off, turn, and he did that, and he was that kind of guy. He'd go around all the people, and literally, he'd make everybody leave. And then all by himself, he'd pick up the paper tablecloths, He'd pick up the leftover goulash, he'd pick up the leftover ravioli or whatever and pick, stack the chairs and vacuum the church and all of that because he was a servant. This guy that cheered at the wrong time at my basketball games, all alone would be the guy picking up the garbage at the church. And he died. And it hit me that my dad might have been one of the greatest people I've ever met in my life. Because the Bible says, he that's greatest, the one that's greatest among you, will be your servant. And even the Lord Jesus Christ, God, came not to be ministered unto, but to serve and to give his life. There are some god given gifts that are public. If God's given you that ability, do it as a good steward with the ability. God gave you that ability. It's not a cocky thing. And then there's many people that are behind the scenes. Whatever it is that God wants you to do because in service, in love, in prayer, we demonstrate that God is in control that God's the most important thing in our lives. In prayer, in love, in service, Peter wrote. That God is in control and God is glorified by that. That's a practical passage, right? Let me pray and we're done. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the Apostle Peter that wrote this letter centuries ago. And he wrote to the believers who were facing persecutions hard times and he wrote to them live so that God is glorified what does that mean live to demonstrate that God is important to you and he wrote about prayer and he said the end is coming you better pray you better be disciplined and serious in your prayer 
And he wrote to them about love, and he wrote about fervent love, about stretching, about activity, so that the recipients of our love ask us, why are you doing that? And we can point people to Jesus. And he wrote about serving, and he wrote about serving Christ by doing things for others. You've been given a gift. Everybody's been given a gift. Now get busy. Do it. Because God's given you the ability. Some are in public. Some are in private. But use your gifts because there's greatness there and God will be glorified. Father, I pray that we take to heart what you wrote to us today, what you wrote to us in this passage and what we studied today. And God, I pray that as believers, as people who know you, we live for you, we trust you, we put our faith and trust in you, that we would live so that you're glorified. Father, I thank you for your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Folks, thanks for coming today. Thanks for the opportunity you gave me to share and a couple of uh, personal stories today. That's okay, right? Hey, the Lord bless you. Have a great, have a great week. Have a great day.